0: This is Cinema Degeneration. If I may put forward a slice of personal philosophy, I feel that man has ruled this world as a stumbling, demented child king long enough. And as his empire crumbles, my precious black widow shall rise as his most fitting successor. I'm Frederick Lawrence. I've rented the house on Haunted Hill tonight so that my wife can give a party. A haunted house party. She's so amusing. There'll be food and drink and ghosts and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. Can you look around this world and believe in the goodness of a God who rules it? Famine, pestilence, war, disease and death. They rule this world. The mark of Satan is upon them. They must hang. And now for you, Bartholomew, my beloved brother. While you are still alive. My ultimate device of torture. Now he must die. The doctor death that we created, he must die. I am not afraid. There is always room for more in the coffin of time. The instinct is alive within me, and you, Dr. Death, are you afraid? No. Now you're going home. Come. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. The Mask of the Red Death. Personalized by the motion picture screen's Prince of Horror, Vincent Price. And then shouldn't you be on your knees to give thanks? No, I beg of you! Mercy, mercy! Lavishly, he plants his corrupting seeds. Sin, spreading living terror that not even the unsullied can escape. Each man creates his own heaven, his own hell. Let me see your face.
1: Alrighty, folks, and fellow cinema degeneration degenerates, welcome once again to Vincent Price Appreciation Month. We are rolling with the punches on this one and covering a dark and dastardly uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptation with Mask of the Red Death from 1964, directed by Roger Corman, released by American International Pictures. And this is a dark and dastardly tale. Uh, it's probably Vincent Price that is the most diabolical. And joining me this evening for the co-review and co-dissection is my Howling at the Full Moon podcast partner, Dustin Hubbard. How in the hell are we? Hey, I'm doing great. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Re- ready to go go down the corridors, uh, the dark and dusty cobweb-strewn corridors of the Mask of the Red Death. Uh, this one, whew, it, as we were talking off the air beforehand, it's got some... Uh, some 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 grim uh, story devices uh, it, it's got all types of Satan worshiping it's got nuances of uh, w- whether or not how deep we want to get into some of this but we're we're, we're heading straight off into it. I mean it's, you know we got to dissect it bit by bit but this one is it's a weird one it's a conglomerate of, of several. Stories, uh notably the Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, and a short story he did called The Hot Frog, and another subplot which was taken from Torture by Hope, uh, by another author that I f- actually did not write the name uh, down because hey, we're, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Vincent Price, and this is, uh, I think, is the sixth or seventh Corman flick that adapted Edgar Allan Poe's work, and I think it might have been the third in the series that start, you know, Vincent Price band But do you, do you remember the first time that you ever watched this? I do not. Honestly, it's something I just feel like I've,
2: I've always been vaguely familiar with it ever since being a small child. <laughs> um, I, I, I've just always remembered being aware of uh, the Corman Price Poe. Uh, series of films because as a young uh teenager i read a lot of Poe, so uh, they were just things i was always aware of i don't remember ever watching any of them for the first time i just i just know them <laughs> so um same here corman, same
1: here i couldn't tell you the first time i watched them but i know i watched them multiple times yeah, and, I,
2: and i know corman did originally want to do mask uh sooner than he did but i he held off because um he was trying to avoid similarities to the seventh seal but then when the time came around he was just like uh who cares (laughs) (laughs) so and i yeah so and thank god
1: he did (laughs) so and and thank god he did do do the movie eventually because it's it's, it's something to behold. It's some of Roger Corman's best shot material. The camera work is really good in it, and the, the, just the visuals, the compositions of the shots. It's yeah. it's, 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 it's beauty and decay is the way yeah. I describe it. Very visual, very gothic, very heavy film. <laughs> very heavy subject material for 1964 yeah the tone is very grim and
2: just everything about it is very bleak but it's very it's a very beautiful film the yes. production design and the lighting and the camera work and everything are just gorgeous so it's like it, that's something that definitely helps it even uh, rise above the other Poe adaptations that they did because this one's so much more of a, a visual feat over things like Fall of the House of Usher and Pit in the Pendulum and things like that.
1: Yeah, it's just it's, it's not leagues above and beyond better than them, but it's just that that little that little notch higher than the rest. I think the cinematography and and the art direction. And it is what sells it, and 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 again, I, I have to reiterate it's its price. and this price, it I know we talk, this whole show is a, you know about price, and this who we're here to celebrate. But it you know anybody that knows his his work knows he had a thing for playing a lot of heavies and a lot of bad guys. I think this is him at his most, his most evil, his most elegant, his most charming you know but that being said this is most evil he's 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 a charming bastard is is the way to put it in this movie
2: yeah prince prospero is a real like bluntly put he's a fucker in this movie <laughs> oh yeah so he's so cold and just emotionless and just devious And Satanic. (laughs) It's something like, I didn't remember how
1: evil he was until I rewatched it. Yeah, me either. Until this, it's probably been three or four years since I watched it. I mean, I owned it, but I just never watched it.
2: It it had been a good ten or more years since I had seen it, because I don't believe I had actually watched it since... Back in the day when I had gotten the, the Midnight Movies double feature that mm-hmm. MGM put out where it was
1: paired with the Premature Burial. Uh, see, I got it on the five movie box, Vincent Price box set, but it was doubled with uh, it was double featured with Madhouse. Nice. And and then uh, the other one had Tales of Terror, Pit and the Pendulum, and The Raven. So it was a really nifty box set. But yeah, but it was paired with Madhouse, which Madhouse—I've already gone on record saying that several times on the show—is my favorite Vincent Price movie. So, and I think I had told. What was the other one you said? Madhouse. No, what were the other titles on the box set again? Oh, oh, um, uh, uh, Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven, and Tales of Terror. I feel like mine was Twice Told Tales. Or maybe that was the third one. That might have been the, th- the, the or I, not the I, third I, one, but the fifth one.
2: I'm not a Price Corman aficionado, but I feel like that was the one where uh, we had the story where Price played Fortunato uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: with the cask of Montiato.
1: <laughs>
2: I love that. I love that short starring
1: him. So, Well, you know, even to touch base on a little bit of Full Moon stuff here, you know, this movie does a little bit of what uh, – uh full moon zone pit in the pendulum did and combined several edgar Allan poe and short stories together to make one big film
2: i know one thing corman did say too is, is that with a lot of these poe adaptations what they tended to do from a screenwriting standpoint would be they would look at the source material as almost the third act of the story and they would try to construct a first and a second act to that would be you know suitable in look and tone to build up to the point where you would move into the actual source material where that would serve as the the finale basically. Because a lot of
1: posts <laughs> were I mean they were shorts, you know? So there's not well they any- did definitely did did that with the uh, Pit and the Pendulum the mm-hmm. roger corman's bit in the pendulum that was definitely the case there but yeah you know you, it's hard to make a you know an 18 page short story into an hour and a half 2 two hour film you know <laughs> you, have to, yeah, you have to pad it with additional material it's
2: just impossible to do
3: that so
1: but yeah but let's go ahead and do the quick imdb synopsis and we'll get off into uh dissecting this bad boy all right mask of the red death from 1964 is as follows a european prince terrorizes the local peasantry well <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta stop right there folks it the local peasantry yes all right anyway <laughs> a european prince terrorizes the local peasantry while using his castle as a refuge against the red death plague that stalks the land and, you know, what a, people always say they'd love the time travel, the simpler times. I, I don't I don't believe that's true. Do you really want to tr- time travel back to the Old West while there was cholera and death and famine? You know, you really want to go back to the 1600s or so, you know, maybe the period of the Black Plague? I, I, I don't think so. Things might have been simpler times, but people also, you know, died on the average at 28, you know.
2: Yeah, that looking at movies like this, I would most certainly have zero interest in going back to these time periods. So, so, especially, I mean, people complain about, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to get political, but with, you know, our COVID situation now, you know what I mean? It's like when, you know, at least nowadays, when, you know, something like this happens, sure, it sucks. But, I mean, we have modern medicine and science and can, you know, try and actually fight it with vaccines and things like that back then the red death you know, they were fucked you're just you're dead yeah you're dead. <laughs> there's, well, no, you know, there's no option your best option was begging an asshole for sanctuary inside of his castle
1: so <laughs> because the castle walls kept all diseases out especially as we see uh, is the case in this movie you know because okay, I mean, life imitates art Double <laughs> like, like paned glass right right <laughs> right all the
2: germs from flying in.
1: Yep. They had sneeze guards and everything and masks, you know, it,
2: it was, it was tip top. Makes me think, I mean, and you know, this is going into the opening of the movie. You know, it makes me think of like return of the living dead when they burned the body pieces, the body parts and rabid weasels. Yeah. When they killed the <laughs> quote unquote rabid weasels in Ernie Kelton Bruner's crematorium and all that ash went up into the air and then it rained back down you know it ca- causing what eventually happened like in the beginning the village gets burned down and stuff and i'm like well, would that maybe you know would that help yeah. spread the plague would that would that make the germs more you know airborne or shooting them up into the atmosphere kind of thing but I don't know. I could be thinking into it too much. So. You know, I
1: don't think you are. I thought you. I think you thought more on it than I did. But uh, that's a great uh, analogy there. I kind of see what you're aiming for, though. I mean,
2: that seems like it could make it worse. I mean, I guess in their case, thankfully, it wasn't making anyone zombies.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! But yeah, let's let's talk about that opening. the uh, The opening shot alone says right off at the beginning what kind of movie you're going in for you know the cemetery the the lady that's picking flowers or whatever in the cemetery the grandmother and that opening cemetery shot is just gorgeous it's just the way it's that pans across that bleak cemetery and then the man in red just sitting there and that was John Westbrook I actually looked up, you know, because as I do, you know, I I do my due diligence and do some research on some of these people. He did the voiceover uh, in 1978, the animated Lord of the Rings, which is a favorite of mine. But I I actually thought, because I had to look up to see who he was and and saw that it was John Westbrook. I thought for sure it was Christopher Lee because Mm -hmm. the man's voice just screamed Christopher Lee. And I get, you know, it wasn't, uh, so I'm wrong, but man, that man had a magnificent voice. He had a, yeah, it's a very distinguished voice, so. but When he turns that rose from white to red, it's a yeah. great, great old right technique. To yeah, it's a great shot. <laughs> when he just says, "The day of deliverance is at hand," deliver my message It's just like, "Oh, shit's gonna go down." You just, you just know there's no good whatsoever that can come from any of this. This, this is not a happy-go-lucky movie whatsoever, folks. Oh, God, no, not at all. <laughs> there's no, no happiness in this movie whatsoever. Like, the happiness is only for the people once they, they they die on camera because then their their torture is, well, you know, over depending on which side of the religious stance you're on. <laughs> you know, whether or not some of these people go on to be continuously tortured or not depends on your personal point of view. But the, it's just death and destruction and decay and famine. I mean, think about it, like, when Prince Prospero, Vincent Price, shows up, the man knows how to make a fucking entrance. He comes in on his, you know, his horse-driven carriage, and, like, (laughs) he almost runs over a baby in the middle of the street and just doesn't (laughs) give a shit. What are you doing there? What are you doing blocking me, you know, uh, blocking my horse's path? And it's just like, um, the the baby (laughs) that you almost trampled? Yeah, he gives no fucks whatsoever. (laughs) Like, oh, but he's so good. He, he he he's a man who made, you know, playing bad look so good. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah.
2: He but, he made being evil seem
1: seem classy. <laughs> he, he did. He always played it with a certain amount of class. I think that was his his that was his you know panache that he put on things. He could play evil. He could play devious and demented. But he always did it from a classy standpoint.
2: Yeah. I, Because he had a very, he had a very classy vibe, and at the same time, I think something that makes him to even, you know, sixty years later still feel slightly, maybe not relatable is the wrong word, but like he feels like a real person, and that there's a level of he has a level of what I would call uh, controlled camp almost, where it's like there's a bit of. Hamminess to it, but he's playing it very just serious. And I mean, you know me, like I, I, talk, I'm a very you know sarcastic, and you know sometimes have a tone. <laughs> you know when I. Speak. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What you mean? <laughs> he he just always you know no matter what the role like Price just had kind of a persona and way that he approached roles that just made him feel real and and relatable even if he was playing a total bastard like Prospero in this movie you know he he doesn't seem like a caricature to me he seems like someone that genuinely could have existed like it doesn't feel like a performance to me
1: no no and that's the key of being a good actor is you know not making it or making it seem like it's not a performance like it's just just you felt like there was no bullshit with the way he portrayed well n- not just Prince Prospero but like any character he did you believed you it have you, have feel, you have to feel the emotion not play the emotion exactly and you feel every every inch of Prospero's madness I mean he he has no no care in the world that he just you know, almost ran over a baby, and then you got Gino and Le- Levitico, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, which is uh, Francesca's, uh, Gino is Francesca's uh, husband, and mm-hmm. Levitico is her father. Mm-hmm. When they start st- standing up to him, because he's the, you know, the, you know, the, 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 well, he's the prince, he, you know, he, he's in charge of everything, he makes a demand, You you know, he says, jump, you say how high. And if you even question him, it's a snap of his fingers. He'll just bring you to your knees and kill you, which is exactly what he's going to do. And I have to say, Francesca has some set of brass balls played by Jane Asher. She's great in this movie. Forces her to like at several points to make a real kind of like a Sophie's choice, so to speak. You're like, listen, you know, I'm not a madman. I'm not without heart. I'm going to kill one of these guys. But I'll let you choose. You know, what do you want? You know, you want your father or your husband to die first. Yep. (laughs) Not a (laughs) need. But Prospero is such a, uh, just such a bastard, and so is Alfredo. Alfredo is a, oh man, Uh, Patrick McGee that played Alfredo. I I think I hated him tenfold more than Vincent Price's Prospero character, hands down. We'll get into why for him in a little bit later, but... Yeah, they both they both get what they deserve. We'll just say that. We'll we'll, we'll we're spoiling everything here, folks, but we'll spoil it in order for you if we possibly can.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But I love like when the grandmother starts screaming and and you know he he's so fed up that he goes to inspect it himself because he can't deal with her screaming because he's he's got people to kill. You know, a person screaming in, in pain and dying is you know not on his agenda. But the grandmother is dead from the Red Death. She's covered with the red spots and blood all over. So his idea is to, well, he's going to take Gino. He's going to take Levitico and take them as prisoners and just take Francesca for a plaything, which is definitely not going to be good for her. We'll see that here coming up. And then he's just like, you know what, everybody, you're going to have a real bad day here because we're just going to burn your village down to the ground. (laughs) I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like, so in the opening five minutes of this movie, he almost runs over a baby. He imprisons a couple people for talking. He's going to sentence them to death, and he's burning down their village. So it's very, very clear which kind of a kind of a person Prince <laughs> Prospero is, right?
2: Yeah, he, he,
1: as I would say, he gives no fucks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of the, the uh, you know, that's par- part of the beauty of this movie is that It's so dark, you know, and we've said that about a couple of his movies here on the show already, talking about The Last Man on Earth, you know, uh, House on Haunted Hill, but there's still some amounts of camp to those movies. I'm going to say there's a certain amount of camp with those movies, but with this movie, I really feel like they're, like you had described it as controlled camp, you know. But they're, it's so dark and so bleak. I was really surprised, at this viewing around, just how dark and with the subject matter was for 1964.
2: Yeah, and with with Price, with that character, you, you know what phrase would come to mind to describe his his persona, especially with like you know, like you said he. <laughs> He does so many evil things. Like literally within the first scene, of this movie, he just has a he has a personality that is deliciously evil.
1: Yes, he, he truly just revels in what he does. He enjoys it. You can tell he enjoys it. Yep. And you know, it just, it, one thing I have to make a point of here, but that we can talk about, you know, sporadically throughout the the, the show, but. The art direction, the set design, the props and everything in this movie. There's so much attention to detail and the, the castles, the set and everything. I mean, well, just chef's kits to the production design of this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The,
2: the production design is
1: nuts. Now, <laughs> I was going to say, when he, when uh, Prospo gets uh, uh, Francesca back the castle you know his little humble abode i guess you could say like one gino and her father they're in so much trouble and nobody is happy about this arrangement because he gets her he gets her back to his place he instantly has her thrown in by his you know his slaves have her thrown into a steaming hot bath to, to clean her up and then you see that he's already got the a lady friend that's uh named juliana played by hazel court and i'm just like it's obvious nobody is happy about this arrangement not mm-hmm. juliana not the help you know <laughs> definitely not francesca and I, I i just i'm just like you know at first i was expecting some you know I, don't, I guess I don't really know what I was expecting, of the weirdness and the craziness of this movie. But, you know, it gets a very, very like uh, tortury, rapey kind of vibes going on between Pr- Prince Prospero and Francesca. But it never quite goes there. He's trying to like break her down mentally because like when she's in the bath, you think, you know, at least, you know, first time watching this and, you know, the, you know, the original time watching this. You know, it, it, you would think that that's where it's going to go is leading you to believe that it's going to become some sexual deviancy of some sort. But no, he's trying to break her mentally and religiously because he makes her take the the cross off. And he's like, is that just a bauble? Yeah. like, Or do you really have faith? Well,
2: yeah, and it, it's clear he, he doesn't have any any interest in her sexually because the, the only thing he says, you know, when she's in the tub, too, is he's like, why do you hide your potty? You know, but he's like he doesn't his his tone and the way he's acting. He doesn't really seem like he cares to see. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just like, why are you? <laughs> why? You know, basically, like addressing like, why do you like? Why are you so shameful? <laughs>
1: like, you know? Right? He's like, I'm not. You know, he, he wasn't there to gawk at her. He wasn't doing that as a in some way of sexual per- perversion. He was just. You know, he he was actually kind of befuddled, I think, and he's like, "Why, why are you so modest?" You know. <laughs> but uh, Juliana knows knows what's going on, and she doesn't like it at all. But uh, I guess my next favorite scene has got to be when um, Prospero says, "I will show you real terror," and and he sh- they they go to that party scene where they're like having uh, you know the all the dignitaries are there and all the people that he's invited to, to help ride out the red death you know and waited out at his castle while everybody else outside the castle was dying and then you know you get one of my favorite characters in the movie now i got to mention this actor skip martin plays the Hop toad in this movie and he's uh a per He's a little person, and he's got his his uh, companion, I guess you could say, which is a little girl called Esmeralda, a little girl called Esmeralda, which is really weird because later on she is completely voiced. her performance in this beginning scene is silent. But when she pops in for another scene, a couple of you know about oh, about an hour later, uh, she has a voice of a full- grown adult, which is really, really weird. Yeah, it's
2: very it's a very disorienting feeling. Yeah, it's very disorienting, very awkward very disorienting and it's... feeling in that you're already seeing like this dwarf is like uh, potentially like married to this child. <laughs> but then she has like awkwardly has the the voice of an adult woman. so it's very just un, uh, uneven feeling. And I don't mean that from, like, a clunky filmmaking standpoint, either. It just feels like none of this adds up. <laughs> <laughs> right. For some, uh, like, unspoken reason.
1: So, Well, I mean, Alfredo is just obviously gawking at Esmeralda while she's doing her little ballet dance. And he's already, you can tell, he's got bad thoughts going on. And before she even kicks over the drink, which splashes on his, you know, like how dare it dare she, you know, knock over a drink to splash a few drops of brandy on his his shoes, he knocks her to the ground. And this is the part where I wrote, n- not only is Prospero a real piece of shit, but Alfredo is even a bigger piece of shit in this movie. Because yeah. like he and he's gonna get everything he has coming to him and then some. Because that's probably one of the best scenes in the movie. I, I almost want to spoil it and talk about it now, but we'll get to
3: it when we get to it.
1: But the part that I love during this uh, sequence is when Price starts knocking everybody down, and I'm not, not saying in a in a physical sense. I think you know you know what I'm I'm getting to is when he tells him you know, act according to your natures, and he's like, you know, he tells the one person to act like a pig. So he gets around on the ground and starts rooting around like a pig. And he tells the other person to be more like a worm. And he's like, do it, get on the ground. And he just starts telling all these people, he tells a one woman, act like a jackass, tells another person to mount her like a jackass. (laughs) And when he tells them, you know, now all of you just start acting according to your natures and root around like animals. And everybody starts just going around and just doing, it was just like, (laughs) I felt like it was almost a. a dark and demented version of Pee Wee's Playhouse, and he was like talking to Cherry and uh, you know the <laughs> and the other characters, and just having them act out his weird fantasies of rooting around like pigs and worms and shit. It was very odd and very like it showed you the powerful mindset that he had, he that Prospero had to be able to convince these people to do those those kind of things. Oh yeah. But yeah, I, I love the the following sequence when uh, Prospero starts taking her from room to room. I think he takes her to the yellow room first, or the white room first, and then the yellow room, then the purple room. And he starts telling the story what uh, Prospero's dad had done about locking a man in the room for three years to where he, you know, when he got out, he couldn't look at the sun or even a daffodil. And he starts talking about, you know, his beliefs in God, God or not. And it's, it's. Price is some of his most charming, but and it's also, again, like a, I'm reiterating what I've already said earlier, is his most evil and elegant. But I love when he gets to the one room and he's like, the way he just drops everything down an octave and he says, that room is not open to you. Not <laughs> yet. It's just a great, great sequence. And, you know, those rooms will come back into play and actually pretty sh- in, pretty sh- shortly they will. When Francesca's having her sleepless night and seeing blood on the nightstand and the chants coming from Latin and the forbidden room, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but it was such a nightmare sequence when she gets to that quote unquote forbidden black room and Juliana is there frozen and there's a raven frozen and they're all bathed in red and then Prospero was laying in the crypt looking dead. You know, it's just a, such a powerful scene.
2: Yeah, it's very.
1: Very intensely moody. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this everything, you know, is bathed in red. I think it's kind of you know is foreshadowing what we would see later on, you know, in the final act of the movie, you know, with everything, you know, to the fact that he's so adamant that they're gonna write out this the red death in the castle that he forbids anybody from wearing red. Yeah. But oh, when she runs into when she leaves you know, when Prosper, his a- eyes snap open. I don't know if it was supposed to be meant that he was in some sort of trance or that he was really, you know, playing dead or whatnot. I'm not quite sure what they were going for, but whatever it is they were that Corman was aiming for, it worked. But the, the Falcon lessons, that's what I got I to gotta, I gotta talk about here for a minute. But when we get to the Falcon lessons, we've got to talk about that for a moment. Because craziness ensues with that. When he starts talking about, you know, how the falcon seeks, you know, is trained, and he goes through the the motions of talking about how they sew their eyes shut. Yeah, I was just like, what? Like, okay, no. of all the things that he's done, he's almost ran over a baby, he's murdered people, he, he's torturing people, he's burning villages down. But I draw the line at like sewing a bird's eyes shut. You know that. <laughs> That was <laughs> to me. i've never heard that of that being a you know a practice
2: of uh doing stuff like that either so i was like huh <laughs> like oh yeah just i did not process that I, I
1: i wanted to look it up to see if that was a real thing but i almost i, I didn't look it up because i didn't want to find out if it was true or not because it was true at us how little, do you sell so or i take that? it like yeah. like how do you do that how do you make it still long enough? <laughs> right, right. Uh, it, I like I, I hoping it's a it's a practice, you know, that uh that 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 uh, it was not I'm just hoping it was not a real practice. I really hope not. I am probably gonna look it up after we finish doing the show and I'm mm-hmm. I'll get back to you with the details that I find out, if anything, but I hope it's not true. Yeah, I, I would hope not. But, but this is the point we would get the big revelation that, what is it? Prospero doesn't worship God because he believes God is dead and been replaced with somebody else. So Prospero worships the devil or the Lord of Flies, as he calls him. And I was actually, yeah, I I didn't remember that part, you know, having not seen it for such a long time. But whoo, heavy subject matter for 1964.
2: Yeah, that was, I feel like probably when this came out, those topics were probably <laughs> kind of
1: taboo and not overly seen too much, so. Yeah, I, I think they, they capitalized on that, so, you know, it was just, ooh, hot button topic, hot yeah, button topic. Like a, lot of, a lot of, like,
2: you know satanism kind of culture probably really didn't start to flare up more until like the 70s wouldn't you say until you hit the 80s with the full-on like satanic panic right right i
1: um, mean i think there was probably uh, a burst of it in the late 60s especially with like you know manson and, and things like that with different cults yeah. and whatnot but it really didn't it hit really heavy, at least in my my eyes, it didn't hit heavy until like like you said, the Satanic Panic of the eighties. I feel like
2: I can't I can't recall when you know someone like you know Anton LaVey probably started to become more of a public figure with you know like the Church of Satan and things like that, and it you know and Satanism kind of became like. In you know, or like the, the yeah. cool, thing. you know, Anton LaVey was like, and I, all I the cool
1: kids are doing it, right?
2: Oh. I, I can't name names because I don't, re- I don't remember anyone. But I mean, he was very popular and like friendly with many like major Hollywood celebrities who had like partied with him and was you know, you can find photos with him with like tons of big celebrities of his his day. So you mm-hmm. um, know. Like it was Satanism kind of became like in like a, a kind of chick thing for a hot minute until it kind of like spiraled out of control in the 80s. And everyone thought like, oh, my God, you know, Satanists are infiltrating suburbia and they're going to ruin you know, society kind of mentality. So yeah, I think when so when this movie came out, I don't think people really had started to grasp those concepts yet. So it was probably kind of kind of fresh, I would I would think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, I agree.
1: Especially for this movie being 64. So, like, that's that's very early, so. Yeah, it feels pretty early for that kind of stuff. I'm sure there are a few movies that have probably predated it, but probably not by many, not by many. And let's talk about poor Scarletti. This sequence to me shows you just how, how vile Prospero could be. You know when Scarletti shows up and he's like, "Oh, I've, you know, I've uh, accepted your invitation to stay behind your walls and, you know, again, kind of ride out the Red Death and wait." And he's like, "No, you're done. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're, you're not allowed here. Turn around, go back." And he's like, yep. but, And the guy just instantly starts begging him. He offers up his wife, <laughs> poor lady. <laughs> he just offers up his wife. And he's like, "I know you've lusted at her the way you've looked at her. You can have your way with her, do anything you want." And he's like, "I've already had that undone." undoubtedly bad pleasure or something like that. Uh, yeah, un- I, that kind of threw me off. Cause I'm like, so he already like, did he
2: already bag this dude's wife and he didn't even know it?
1: Right. That that's what I thought he was alluding to, which is kind of creepy at the same time, but everything in this movie is creepy. Oh. I love when he, when he tells him he's like straight up, he's like, you know, if you leave now or you're, I got a crossbow bolt, crossbow bolt with your name on it. And he's like, and it's just the way in that understated uh, drawl of uh, price, it's like, for you, friend. And he just puts a crossbow bolt right into his neck and then tosses down a, a sword to the wife and is like, here, he's like, you know, you can kill yourself or ride back to town and, and you know, try it out with the Red Death. That crossbow is a motherfucker.
2: It's, and like, it's funny, too, because that starts kind of like a little trend of, like, him basically exacting death on people from the top of the castle. Like, anyone that, like, approaches the castle, he's just like,
1: if he doesn't kill them himself, he's like, kill them. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, when, the, when the, the townspeople later on show up, and they're like, there's, what, like, six or seven of them that are still alive, and they're there with, like, a cart full of dead bodies, and they're like, listen, this is all we got. And he's like, yeah. Well, you're still alive. You know, he's like, uh, if you come in here, I'm going to try to come in here. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yep. it, uh, it, it, I mean, I hate to say, use the term it's so great, but it is it is something to behold The watch Price be quite this evil. Because let's face it, the man was a very kind man, a very cultured man, a very, you know, cool individual. But to see him just bring this out of the depths and just be so gleefully evil is just... It's a pleasure to watch.
2: You know, they say usually it's like the nicest people are usually the ones who are, you know, playing the most evil bastards around. So, you know, there you go, which is, you know what, like when you're a genuinely good person, I mean, you know, and, and I'm certainly would never even compare myself to someone like Price. But like even on, on those rare instances when people ask me to act in something, it's usually as if i'm not asked to play a scientist because i have like the glasses and the comb over like and
3: <laughs>
2: they ask i'm asked to play like nutcases and like assholes and like killers like that's just and I, and I think i'm a nice person so i don't know maybe and i but i enjoy playing evil people so yeah that's probably a a neat thing for you know genuinely nice people to you know because you get to do you get to you know be that evil person that you know that you're not (laughs) you know you can do it do evil stuff get away with it and no one gets hurt at the end of the day so you
1: know right right you get to play out all those fantasies of being such a Mm -hmm. bad person i I, i'll i'll be honest i consider myself a, a decent person and a good human being but i've rarely if ever been asked to or or try that well i haven't even auditioned for any g- parts of i guess you could say good people but any part i've <laughs> ever been offered or been asked to audition for has always been some sort of sleazy redneck crazy murdering philandering rapist killer you know yeah whatever i mean, I,
2: I, I can't say i've ever been asked to audition for anything which probably makes me sound
1: <laughs>
2: i don't know like an asshole but like, <laughs> But mainly because I don't like to act so personally, so when I do do it, it's usually for, you know, close filmmaker friends and stuff, or it's me having to do it in a pinch for one of my own films. You know, it's not because I want to or anything, but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, in the in the classic words of ice tea, the best thing that can happen to you is getting typecast, because you always have a nonstop. String of roles available to you, you know. But like, I guess if I'm not playing an asshole, a killer, or a scientist, my go-to that I have done numerous times is nine-one-one operator. Have <laughs> <laughs> um, you played that more than once? Yes, actually. <laughs> I, honestly, I've been a nine-one-one operator maybe three or four times. <laughs> so, and one time I even played a crime boss. So
1: ah, go <laughs> dust <laughs> right on. I still, uh, uh, I'm holding out for the crime boss role at some point in my life, sooner, sooner or later. Ironically, but. that that crime boss role was my character name was
2: Herb Lovecraft.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: and uh, and I did that movie back in March, uh, where I was the the main bad guy, and I was basically a kidnapper in that. So nice, nice.
1: Now, I have to ask before we continue with our price uh, uh, stuff, but um, do you like do you like playing uh, bad guy characters more than you do? Like a- people that are more on the straight and narrow and the good guy kind of characters? Oh, of course. <laughs> like, I'm like, that, that's rhetorical, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's not even a question, right? That's more of a list a statement. Yeah, I like to play. <laughs> this is something more fun about it, you know? like like it said you know, you know the worst thing that happened you can get typecast
2: totally
1: so uh oh, okay but back back to our story back to our story we'll get we'll get into this a little bit deeper uh what do you think a Prospero's story when he's talking about his fa- his uh the person in his family lineage that had tortured hundreds and hundreds of people for the the sake of the church do you think he was mentioning the grand inquisitor torquemada do you think it was like kind of an under under Uh, under the rug kind of mention it kind of
2: felt like a loose suggestion that it was torquemada to me yeah
1: the thought didn't cross my mind that's that's what i thought too uh, but yeah, that that kind of almost went without saying. It was just like, oh yeah, that was what it was, and I could I couldn't help but think of Lance Henderson and pitting the pendulum at that point. <laughs> that's that's my Torquemada personally because that was the one i more, I more grew up with. Was yeah, same in same. I'm my Torquemada. So Lance is my Torquemada. That is correct. Uh, This is where we learned uh, where Juliana has got some other things going on. She wants to marry the devil. I'm like, she ain't playing around and she goes through quite a bit of uh, an ordeal (laughs) to do it. She brands her, her bare chest with a branding iron with an upside down cross, which she thinks is part of the, the ritual to become married to the devil. Uh, It's, it's just – the. I guess it wasn't something that I was prepared for this time around. I was just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's
2: part of the the marrying Satan playbook. So you got to, like, brand yourself the Upside Down Cross or a pentagram or something to show your uh, eternal uh, support of the Dark
1: One, so – and she's, and she was all in. So, Oh, she was totally all in. Now, this is the question I have for you. Uh, between the, this scene and the next scene, we got Hop Toad is banding with Alfredo because he says he's, uh, you know, displeased with the, working for the prince and being his plaything. And he, he feels that working for Alfredo, you know, will be a better job title for him. Did you ever buy it for a second? You know that 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 he was that he or did you know from the get go that he was playing Alfredo?
2: Yeah, I, I, it kind of feels watching it. Like there's there's some ulterior motives going on, especially <laughs> how, how we saw the previous you know s- situation play out with his wife slash girlfriend, whatever you know, dancing around, and then Alfredo just s- smacks the crap out of her That's and stuff, and plus. You know, like, I'll I'll, go, I'll touch on it briefly, like, the way that they're just talking about her and looking at her, and they there's just kind of like this weird um, pedophile vibe with Alfredo regarding his wife, which is kind of redundant, or ironic, maybe, to even mention, because clearly the, the dwarf is an adult, <laughs> and he's married to a child, but I'm not sure if she was supposed to be a child.
1: I don't don't see. That's what I question, whether or not she was a child or was she almost had like a reverse ageism, like a Benjamin Button kind of disease or something.
2: I don't understand the logistics of what what the intention there was, which I guess makes it more interesting because, you know, then we can sit and kind of hypothesize about it but uh it, you know based on all that i i definitely don't think he ever intended on you know like working with alfredo uh with with the best of intentions and in mine
1: oh me either and skip Ooh. martin is so good as uh he is so good as the hop toad we just recently reviewed uh horror hospital on pizzeria and he played uh a character in that movie that was he he shined through an Anything he did, I'm not. I've seen very little what he's done, but mm-hmm. Skip was a was a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. But, but we also got to talk about like when Juliana tries to help Francesca and Gino <laughs> and her father escape by giving them a key, and these movies, you gotta know, it, their escape is so short lived. They never quite, they never quite capitalize on the time. There's always like time is of the essence. We must move quickly, but they're dilly-dallying around. (laughs) It's just like, you know, taking their sweet time when they should be running for the hills. I mean, they, they do like she goes and she like, she sets
2: them free and they go to make their escape. And it's like, they literally just run
1: straight to Prospero. Right, right. You can't even say they made a good r- run. No, they didn't. They didn't don't... make a good run. They made a dumb they're, run. They're running, and he's just, like, right there. <laughs> it's yeah. like, And it... he's dressed up as a guard? Like, when he turns around, and they're like, <gasps> like, well, why would you run straight up to the guard in the first place? It doesn't matter that he was Prospero. But it was yeah. this when he turns around, it is kind of a, a wonky kind of sequence, you know, and another otherwise almost perfectly made film it is a kind of a wonky kind of sequence
2: it it was very off
1: feeling to me <laughs> and uh, i i felt like this scene coming up where they're at the feast with that another one of those feasts uh, feasts mm-hmm. and the way prospero is throwing the daggers into the table at, at the denunciation of each word. You know, he's like, I'm making a point. And he's throwing the dagger into the table to make his points is so great. And he puts it, He puts. Uh, oh, the, the, the father and Gino through the test. You know, they've been wounded. They're a little beat up. And he tells them that one of the daggers has been poisoned, so they must cut themselves. They'll die within five seconds. The dagger test doesn't go quite as planned. I felt like it was almost like a precursor to, like, the blood test sequence from the thing like, you and know, that it's sooner or later, something bad's coming down the pike, but it's, and it, it's weird because when you watch situations like this play out in movies, obviously
2: for like, not necessarily maybe, maybe for runtime purposes, but also for like buildup of suspense and tension purposes, like obviously like the first knife isn't going to be the poisoned one. You got to drag it out a bit for the, the nail biting. Yeah you know but it's like oh the first knife or you know the first dagger the second dagger the third dagger the fourth dagger and they're and they're all clean and i'm in my mind i was like so was was this game rigged were none of them poisoned because then when he goes the father ends up being you know the fifth the fifth dagger So he yeah he draws
1: he draws the short straw to to
2: drag grab the last dagger and Prospero just runs him through with his sword and he's like you cheated (laughs) like and I'm like but did he he was grabbing the last dagger he was like I don't but I think he
1: was making a move I I took it as that the father was making a move to try to stab Prospero Prospero
3: just
1: kind of threw me around it it and
2: kind of rewatched that two or three more times and i was i was kind of confused at the the way that played out because i was like it it felt like the father was just going to grab the last dagger and prospero just leans forward and he's like nope and he just like runs him through and he's like you were cheating and i'm thinking like was this his plan all along just to get to the end and just be like yo you're dead (laughs) kind of right but i mean you know you never know but that was the thought in the back of my mind, was I was like, I think maybe none of the daggers were poisoned. It was just like all a mind game. He wanted to see them sweat it out.
1: And yeah, then he wanted plan- to see them bleed and, and, and see how far the, they would go, I think. Yeah, and just probably intended on just killing whoever the last
2: man standing was anyway, even though, I mean, depending on who drew first, you obviously know who the last man standing is, because if if the quote-unquote poisoned dagger ended up being the last one the first person to draw last one to draw
1: and die so yep yep i, I personally don't think any of the daggers were poisoned i think it was, was all a ruse
2: i feel like they weren't
1: either but i don't know
2: he could have put po- he could have poisoned them with the red death but
1: <laughs> yeah he, maybe he did you know we'll never know
3: we get, we get
1: another scene of Juliana trying to complete her ritual and she gets the, she gets, you know, Prospero puts her through the ringer and she drinks the, the potion or poet poison or whatever that was supposed to be. But the nightmare of visions aside, she gets far more than she bargains for because this is the one scene that I felt like it is the one scene that didn't play out. Well, it just wasn't choreographed. Well, it, it, it felt a little wonky to me, and maybe I'm just being nitpicky, you know, because I am nitpicky. Uh, when the Falcon kills Juliana and, like, plucks out her eyes and scratches her face and rips out her throat and everything. It's just choreographed a little wonky. It, it, it didn't play off that well. Is The one scene in the movie that I felt was just, like, eh. Like, they could have spent some extra time on that one.
2: Yeah. I felt that,
1: that was a little wonky. Funny, too, like you
2: mentioning her, her you know, getting... You know, killed and whatnot. It's funny too because anytime someone like close to Prospero dies like that, there's like no, <laughs> there's no emotional reaction to, to them having like, left,
3: <laughs> you know, yeah,
2: and and parted parted this mortal coil. He's just kind of like, yep, that's 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 what happened. So, <laughs> yeah, that's just the
1: way the cookie crumbles. These things, yeah. you know. <laughs>
2: He's just so not phased by any of by anything like that, so which I find fascinating too, because it just uh, some people might think that that could be a a weird acting choice or a bad acting choice or a weird you know direction choice, but it's like from a character standpoint, it's amusing to me as a viewer because it just shows like he just doesn't fucking
1: care about any of these people. He only cares about himself. No, it only cares about himself, and maybe insane. slightly about Francesca. Maybe, yeah, maybe, but definitely okay. himself and The next scene, and this is the next scene before we really get to like what I consider the final act, when the villagers show up, begging for for leniency, begging for forgiveness, begging for just any kind of uh, pity, and mm-hmm. they're coming to the wrong. Part person as soon as they're like, oh, please, you know, I eminence, mean, have pity on us. And it's like, you you people, you villagers are fucked. You <laughs> know, you ain't gonna find any of that here. But what I did find interesting, and uh maybe you have thoughts on this, but he, he's he is very adamant, but that they do not kill the child. And he tells even the uh the guards with the, the crossbows and whatnot, he's like, not the child. And he's very strict about it.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. and he has to, and then and the guards even second guess him on it, and he has to like override them, like with a bit more authority and be like, no, like not the child. Like the child, he's, yeah. So I guess it, at some, somewhere he does have some kind of more. It's weird because he seems to have a moral center in that he doesn't want to murder that child, but at the same time, when he rode into the village
1: in the beginning, he was going to run over that child. So. Yeah, he was going to run over a baby, but like a ten-year-old kid, he was just—he uh, was. I don't know. I—I I, I didn't quite get it. It was a weird aesthetic and a weird choice, but I—I I, I guess it maybe showed that he had some sort of shred of humanity. You know? Who knows? Who knows? The next scene didn't. You know, we're coming up on my favorite scene. I got it. I got to really <laughs> contain myself on this one because <laughs> it's Hop Toad tricking Alfredo to get into a a gorilla outfit that he says, you know, that Prospero has amongst his, you know, his jewels and his crowns and his treasures. And he's like, nobody will ever suspect that it's new and, and he's going to bring him out to do, perform a little, you know, trick, a little sideshow act for the people that, you know, is, are now at attending this big feast and this big party. And the way he ties... Alfredo in, in this, you know, gorilla outfit and ties him to the chandelier and starts raising him up into the sky. Not into the sky, but raising him up into the, the ceiling of the room, douses him in brandy, sets him on fire, and lets it be known like straight up. He's like, this is for slapping and, and beating on Esmeralda. I, I can't say anything else but good. Fuck him. And not only that, but uh Toad gets five gold pieces uh, awarded to him for entertaining the crowd by Prospero.
2: Yeah, yeah, Prospero's not phased in one bit that he basically watches Alfredo burn
1: alive in front of everyone. Yeah, no, not phased at all. The only thing that phases him is he gets the guards just like, clean that up and get it out of here. He's like, how, how are my guests meant to, to be able to dance, you know, <laughs> with <laughs> that in the middle of the room? Yeah, the burn carcass in a gorilla outfit. <laughs> now, in between all this, we sk- skipped over a bit where the man in red had reappeared, which, again, sounding like Christopher Lee. And he he's he's making his way back to, to the castle. And at this point in, in the story, we're getting into the final act, the final few scenes here, where Prospero has forbidden anybody to wear red. All right? Now, the man in red shows up. He sees him walking completely dressed in red from head to toe in a cloak and an apparatus kind of like covering his face so you can't see his face but when there's an overhead shot of him chasing the man in red down there's people wearing red all over the place like it yeah. goes from when you don't see anybody in red until he says what was that person doing here And he's like i forbid them to forbade them to you know wear red there's people with red scarves Red yeah, I know there's a few people with red in the crowd. <laughs> like like I don't know, like and but previous to that scene, I don't think anybody had red on. So I don't know if it was either a, just a mistake.
3: Yeah.
1: or B if they were showing that the red death was coming creeping in. I'm not sure that, that is possibly a thematic suggestion. So
2: especially knowing with, you know the the reveal and everything that is that is very possible. I but I'm not for certain. But I did notice that there there were a couple other instances of red
1: from the aerial shot. Yeah, there's people with red scarves, you know, red shoes, red gloves, and it's just like, yeah, he forbid people to wear red. But it's kind of here, there, and everywhere. Yep. But when he counters the man in red, he is completely Prospero is completely convinced that this man is either a the devil. A uh, a servant of the devil, a messenger of the devil, coming to basically, you know, let Prosper know what a good job he's done and how he's followed all his rules and how he's, you know, he's sacrificed for him, he's worshipped him, he's g- given everything up to him. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's it's not quite, it's it's not it's not quite what he thought it was. It, he takes the he's like when he's like, who are you? When he pulls the mask down and is the reveal that is. Vincent Price it's Prospero bathed in blood covered in the red marks and everything of the red death. And I love the line that he has here. He says like death has no master basically saying, you know, it's like, who he's like, I'm not who you think, you, you know, I'm not who you think I am. I am not the devil because the devil is not the master of death. Death has no master yeah. and man makes his own. You know, he tells him man makes his own God, his own hev- heaven and his own hell. And everybody is in a death trance or not a death trance, but a dance macabre of, uh, just dancing in red. Everybody is co- instantly covered in red, taken out by the red death. Everybody is just kind of within the snap of this guy's fingers, you know, dead or dying. And, you know, and his Prospero's finally moments is quite nightmarish as he tries to leave. And I, I kind of gloss over the fact that he, uh, Prospero asked for Francesca to be either spared or to be taken with him so that they could spend eternity in hell together.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. It's so weird and so eerie. Then, like, all the the people, like, dancing around Prospero in his final moments, tracking him down, and he's trying to run through the crowd. And everywhere he turns, there's the man in, in red, which is he's looking at himself, you know? And he's just running through corridors, running through those final rooms, those colored rooms, the yellow room, the purple room, and then the the black room, you know, and where, you know, he finally falls down and he's just, you know, just oozing blood from every orifice pretty much Mm -hmm. that the red death had taken over him is such a great, just a, again, it's just a chef's kiss to an end to such a diabolically bastardly character.
2: And and it just goes to show you that it's, like, it's almost, like, feels like a parable about karma to me, where it's, like, you know, he's an awful, awful human being, you know, and it's, like, he seemed to think that he was bigger than, you know, uh, the situation, and he, you know, was like, fuck it, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna throw a big ball, and, you know, we're gonna lock ourselves in, and we're gonna be safe, you know, but it's, like, you're not safe you know you you're not bigger than you know forces greater than you it's like you can you can pretend like you can escape you know the the red death or the plague or even death but it's like you can't you can't escape (laughs) you know you can try but you'll get yours and i I feel like that's that's kind of what that meant to me is it's like, you know, he he could never escape. (laughs) That was that was his fate. He was and he was a horrible person. And it just goes to show that, you know, he he thought he could barricade himself and, you know, create this sense of, you know, safety with, you know, his all of his people in there and stuff, but you you can you can't escape the plague.
3: <laughs> like
2: and and it and it, Oh it, no I, no I like that idea that you said about all the little you know the instances of red and stuff. I like that idea thematically and that it's like death had already infiltrated the the castle and you know that probably was the red death spreading
1: thematically. Yeah, because it just seems to me like they wouldn't have made that kind of mistake. For him to say, I forbid red to be worn here. You know, I I felt that was just like a cinematic suggestion, like, yeah, you know, death has already come to your little castle. (laughs) And, you know, you think you can run, but you can't run. And I almost feel like maybe the last 10 minutes or so of this movie was almost in a way meant to be like a fever dream and the red death had just consumed all of them. This is just my.
2: Within a matter of moments, I
1: mean, everyone's already just covered.
2: Yeah, they're they're already just infested with with red death and they're all they're all gory and you know, red, you know, shrouded in red lighting and red makeup and they're just the entire ballroom is just
1: a mass of dead bodies within a matter of moments. Yeah, and it's just such a great sequence. Like I feel like it, like the last fifteen minutes of the ten, fifteen minutes of this movie is just so perfect and yeah, such a, a,
2: movie is a very fever dream feeling to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, like even down to the very last sequence, the very last sequence where the different people in, in cloaks, the men that are shrouded in the various color cloaks and the purple cloak, the white cloak, the red, the black, they're all talking about the different plagues that they had spread. You know, yep. for, for a brief, you know, what two minutes there at the end, it's a great sequence. It's just like it sends chills down my spine just thinking about it now. And they're talking about spreading the pestilence, and you know how many people they left. And that little girl is the only one, you know, left. I think. What did he say? Uh, the the man in red said, you know, only six had not passed. Francesca, yep. the girl, uh, the Pro- not Prospero. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, he definitely did not get spared. Hop toad, the little girl, the. The, the Francesca and uh, Gino and, and a couple others. I can't remember. They said there, were, there was an old man that was left at the, uh, at the village that they had spared. But it's just when they're all comparing, almost like they're comparing notes like, yeah, well I killed a you know, hundred thousand with my plague. Well, I killed 6,000 in the first day. And, it almost seems like a like a big prick waving contest. Like they're yeah, bragging exactly. about.
2: Like it's literally, it's exactly what I was thinking. It's like a dick. It's like a dick size competition. It's like they're It's just like this big pissing match. It's like, yeah, well, I wiped out these this many people. Yeah, well, I wiped out this. Well, I killed everyone but six.
0: <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> right. Like, I killed everybody. So take that, bitches. These kind oh. of like you know higher powers of you know. The you know the nether world basically walking among right.
3: men
2: you know
1: and I think we'll end it off with the voiceover well, not the voiceover with the the end credits which read and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all and it was a quote from Edgar Allan Poe. And I think that's a perfect way to end that off. Uh, and the credit sequence with the animated, what looks like children's hand laying out the tarot card deck yeah. was, was, yeah. was a, was a nice aesthetic and choice. Yeah. It was an
2: interesting choice. I, Cause you know, I'm a big credit whore. I love, I'm sometimes credits are my favorite part of a movie.
3: I've <laughs> we heard you like,
2: say that more than once. Yeah. But I, but I, it's true though, you know, like credits, I think are more so a place where a filmmaker, can just you know kind of exemplify personality and aesthetic and you know the 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 look and visual vibe i think for what you're going for for the film and i think that 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 choice of the hands with the tarot cards you know playing out over the credit it was it was a very interesting thought-provoking choice i think on corman's part
1: yeah i thought that was a great little touch but again, this another chef's kiss. This movie is filled with chef kisses. I mean, this is so great. It's so dark. It's bloody. It's elegant. It's brutal. It's bleak. It's. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's it's uh, it's priced at some of his best, which I'm, I'm glad we chose this one to do. Uh, that being said, let's go ahead and give our final thoughts and ratings on this. You know how we do things around here: rating on a scale from one to ten. Ugh. Rating on a scale from one to ten
2: like, Well, you know, I I love Corman. Uh, you know, he's he's right up there as one of the kings of you know independent film and horror cinema in general. And Price will, was is and always will be one of the all time greatest actors that ever graced the genre. So when Corman and him came together and made you know these this series of films based on classic horror literature you know i think that it kind of goes without saying that in my opinion at least i think this they're all good movies on their own merits some better than others but i think that the mask of the red death is genuinely corman's masterpiece
1: i can see that
2: i can see that it, it is one of the most beautiful artistically shot, set designed, choreographed, costume designed horror films, I think that we've ever had as horror fans. It's just it's a beautiful package. It's a thought-provoking movie. Doesn't lay everything out on the line for you, I think. It leaves a lot of stuff open to suggestion and interpretation, which is good too, because then you can really you know have these conversations and really you know mull over like what did this mean you know what did that mean because sometimes i'm a i'm a i'm a viewer that likes and a filmmaker who likes to have things spelled out a lot of the times because my brain <laughs> kind of goes goes
1: into turn around if i can't like have all the answers about something. Right. But, but you it, know like having things being unresolved like listen i need answers <laughs> but but con- <laughs>
2: conversely though it is it is a great thing to to not be given everything on a silver platter and really having to to think about it and you know mull over things and kind of have your own conclusions you know and maybe i think one thing whereas you you perceive things differently and that's that's great and you know i think that this movie is, it's a i think it's a perfect movie honestly i really do and it's and it's genuinely probably price's greatest performance and his greatest villain it's like all around it's got a nice bow right on it i think it's it's not a movie that i would go back and revisit a lot you know i would yeah like it's a bit dark it is yeah, a bit dark you know i'd probably go back and obviously i'd rewatch like you know a modern day full movie or something again before i would rewatch this but this isn't a movie i don't think you need to watch a lot it's a it's a heavy it's a heavy view, but uh, the vibe and the tone and just the very dreamlike fantasy kind of quality to it, it's a, it's a,
1: it's a perfect movie to me. I, I think it's easily a 10. Well, I don't think – I don't know how to follow up after that. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you pretty much said everything that I wanted to say. You know, I mean, um, movie are so long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know – I, I I would just be reiterating everything you just said, but I mean, I
2: know that does, it's a movie that merits it though. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it is a gorgeous,
1: very effective movie. Well, it's so, it's a perfect example of gothic horror film. You yep. know, it, it's, you know, people t- talk about gothic horror films. I don't think this one gets mentioned enough. I think this is the epitome of it. I, I will reiterate a few things you said. I, I, I definitely think it's prices, you know finest villain it's him at his most most gleefully evil and just so diabolical you know i mean he he's he did it so well but he, i don't think he probably ever did it better than he did here um i don't think roger corman uh, roger corman might have uh, maybe there's a movie in his repertoire that i haven't seen that might be better than this but i don't know that i've seen it uh, i don't know that i've witnessed it uh you know the the great thing about price is he made so many
2: movies you can always try and find one right (laughs) because there's enough
1: content to go back and wade through you never know what you might find yeah Yeah, i'm like like i still say to this day my my favorite move you know vincent price movie is mad houseman when we get to that review i'll tell everybody why but this is his finest evil performance this is uh Just him more refined you know he was always a tad bit campy but he just he was there was no camp here in this movie at all uh it's it's dark it's gothic it's it's beautiful um other than the couple of little things that i talked about like uh the raven death of juliana and a few other little minor and and i'm talking very minor things i'm coming in a hair lower than you i'm coming in a 9.5 but that's nice. that's pretty good. It's 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 really damn good, and I think that you know, the Roger Corman, Vincent Price, American International Pictures the run of Edgar Allan Poe stories were great, but this was the height. This was the pinnacle of of them all. And I'll leave it at that. You know, it, you know, once you hit the top of the mountain, there's nowhere to go but downhill from there. That's true. <laughs> that's a sad truth. So yeah, yeah. Well, that being said, I think we'll put a pin in this one for the evening. But I want to thank you uh, for joining me for I think the which is our first review. That's a non-full uh, moon movie.
2: That, that is correct. Definitely. Yeah. That's true, but you know the the ironic thing is, is that it might not be full moon, but there is that connective tissue because you know, yeah, like we, you know, there there were kind of themes of uh, Torquemada in this, and you know, obviously Torquemada was a character in a full moon movie based right, based, right, based on a a Poe Poe film or based on a Poe story, so you know full moon has dipped their toes in in these types of waters so you know this is kind of like a
1: you know distant cousin to full moon so i can see that and i think it counts it's it's a it's a film by by close relation i think (laughs) definitely but that being said uh, i want to thank you for joining me once again and taking a couple hours out of your schedule because i know it takes time to watch these movies to make notes on them and uh and to review them with me and whatnot. So I appreciate you t- taking a, uh, a big chunk out of your evening for, for this. I always do. And uh, we'll be doing this again tomorrow night on another Full Moon movie. Definitely. Looking forward to that one. Yep, yep. So, and I'm looking forward to it. And that'll be a special show because we'll have a very special guest that I won't mention right now. But we will have a very special guest on that show. But again, thank you, folks, once again, for tuning in to Vincent Price Appreciation Month. We have been reviewing and dissecting 1964's Mask of the Red Death, and we still have two more episodes coming at you. So keep tuning in, and we'll keep bringing them to you. The village
0: is full of the Red Death. The red death. It's post I beg you. Hello, I beg There's no church. By any God. In all the gods of time, I beg you. <laughs> My wife, you've always thought her beautiful. I knew you desired her. What's your eyes for? This Scarlatti thought of himself as a good man in many things. And he thought of his wife as pure and unassailable. I give her to you to do it as you please. I've already had that, Duncan.